That was a fantastic and thoughtful discussion about ESG and systemic risk. Uh, if you missed it, it will be on the website uh, in a recording later. And I'd also like to say that we made it until 10.54 this morning before the first mention of crypto at an ESG conference. <laughs> so I think that's pretty good. It, we did well. Um, so now we're going to move to a different topic, also in the ESG space, not surprisingly, and talk about corporate governance and ESG. Um, our panel will be moderated by Ellen Myers, right here, who is a reporter at CQ Roll Call, where she publishes the weekly newsletter CQ ESG Briefing. Ellen? Great. Thank you so much, Jennifer, and welcome to the ESG and Corporate Governance Panel. Uh, before we dive into our discussion, we have a few housekeeping items. I'll be asking Doug, Siri, and Bill questions for about 45 minutes or so, and then we'll turn to audience questions. Uh, similar to the last panel, you people at home can submit questions through Cato's website, Facebook and YouTube, uh, wherever you're watching the live stream, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoEcon. And we'll also uh, take questions from the audience here, and questions will be answered following the, the conversation. So let's turn into our panelists. Let me just do a quick introduction of everyone, starting with uh, Douglas Chu. He is the president of the Soundboard Governance LLC and a fellow at the Center for Corporate Law and Governance at Rutgers Law School. And then we have Bill Hulse. He's the vice president at the US Chamber of Commerce Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness where he focuses on policy development, advocacy, and communications. And then last but certainly not least, we have uh, Siri Terjese. She is the Associate Dean of Research and External Relations, a professor and executive director of the um, Maiden Center for Value Creation at Florida Atlantic University's College of Business. And thank you all again for joining. So to start off, Doug, I'm going to start with you. How would you define ESG, and you know, how do you compare that to the concept of uh, corporate governance? All right, thanks. Well, I, I think that it's been well established already that there is no definition of ESG. Um, in one of the SEC's uh, proposed rules, they start with, should we, you know, define ESG? I wrote a comment letter and say, no, please don't do that, uh, because it's just going to devolve into a lot of noise, which is what this whole area has become. Now, when you hear a lot of podcasts and other things in kind of mainstream media, a lot of it starts with, ESG is the concept of doing well by doing good, or doing good by doing well, or whatever you want to say. It's not that. Those people are completely, well, they're not completely wrong. Doing well while doing good is a type of ESG. You know, at its core, ESG, all it is, is considering environmental, social, and governance factors in whatever you're doing. There is no right. There is no wrong. You could consider these factors and say, whatever, they don't matter. But you did consider them. Um, the notion that it's doing well by doing good, a lot of people out there who are using ESG factors, they have no intention of, of that. You know, they're trying to avoid certain things. Um, you know, so when an investor uh, is doing ESG, a lot of them, they don't care about 
climate change. They just want to get it off their books. A lot of companies that are looking at this, they say, okay, we've got dirty assets. Let's sell them to private equity. Did they solve anything? No, they didn't. They probably made the whole thing worse. Then, you know, so that's one form of ESG, doing ESG. Another is kind of the thematic or values-based ESG. And this is where, yeah, you're saying, I, you know, I want to put my money and, you know, corporations want to do things where they think, you know, there's going to be some kind of public benefit or, you know, values-based. So, you know, take uh, a religious fund or uh, religious activists that are going after companies saying, well, if you pay for your employees to cross borders to get abortions, you know, that's bad. Uh, Other people are saying that's good. You know, that's a consideration of a social factor. And, but it's being used in a different way. And then you have impact. And so I think that's really where it's doing well by doing good. We're saying, okay, there is technology out there to, uh, you know, alternative energy, wind, solar, uh, technology to, you know, make jet engines that don't emit carbon. And we believe in those, uh, you know, we believe those technologies are going to be beneficial to society in the future. Therefore, we're going to put our money there because we think there's money to be made there. And it's also doing what we think is good for the planet or healthy or whatever. So when you talk about doing ESG, it's, there is no good or bad. It's just, it's just factoring these things in, whether it's corporate actions or investing, uh, or what have you. And so, you know, we'll get into the discussion, um, but I want to dispel this myth that it's only doing well by doing good, because when people say things like that, it's just not helpful. Yeah, Bill, curious to hear your thoughts too on ESG and, you know, the considerations. Yeah, thank you for inviting me today. So I think this whole event today was really well constructed to recognize that ESG just isn't even about just the SEC. And I missed the panel before this, but ESG is now creeping up in the debate for prudential regulation, for example. When some people think of ESG, they just think of climate. Well, ESG is theoretically more than climate. Within the E factor, we're talking about many other things, theoretically, depending who you talk to. We're talking about waste disposal. We're talking about GHG emissions. We're talking about biodiversity. Within the S category, I think it's in the eye of the beholder, too. Sometimes when you hear S, people immediately assume, oh, we're talking about you know, workforce diversity, for example, or board diversity, for example. Um, as Doug was mentioning, it could theoretically about anything related to that. It could be related to a company's policies on abortion. You know, the kind of universe of issues there is theoretically unlimited. Um, I don't think this panel is an agreed upon definition of ESG, but I do think we can all agree that the term ESG, you know, if ever had any value as a communication tool, is being lost just given that it is morphing and has become such an ambiguous term that it's really kind of lost any sort of you know, useful definition at this point. And it's something where I think it's a lot more important now that we're talking about the discrete issues that are part of the conversation.
information instead of talking about ESG as a whole. Are you for or are you against it? No, let's talk about you know whether or not the policies that are being discussed in terms of implementing some sort of ESG agenda are appropriate for businesses and appropriate for investors and appropriate for markets. Um, so the U.S. Chamber of Commerce approaches the debate on corporate governance with two principles in mind. Um, corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, and corporate sh um, disclosures should provide material information to investors. Um, materiality is a critical concept for corporate disclosures. Uh, the Chamber released a report back in 2014 on corporate disclosure effectiveness, which gets into a lot of things, but the primary point we make in there is balancing you know, the information that's actually disclosed and whether or not that's creating unnecessary or burdensome costs on companies. A few years later, we released a report analyzing the materiality standard for corporate disclosures. and really gets into this concept that's enshrined in a Supreme Court decision in TSC Industries v. Northway, where basically the Supreme Court says that the idea that a fact is material if it might be important to some investors and would, over, would overwhelm other investors does not make it material. Um, Senator Rounds notably just introduced some legislation that would codify this concept. Um, so we get nervous when politicians attempt to describe what information is material, and we're extremely concerned with various rulemakings underway at the SEC. In general, we're concerned about government using policy tools intended to influence uh, policy outcomes that are about the benefit or changes to society rather than kind of the best interest of the company and its investors under the auspices of protecting investors. Um, you know, we've opposed disclosure mandates from Congress. Um, this, kind of, this kind of a nasty trend that got started with the Dodd-Frank Act and a trend that seems to be continuing the various bills. The SEC is now contemplating various uh, mandatory co corporate disclosures that I know we're gonna talk about today. Um, but we've long advocated for reforms to proxy advisory firms that the SEC has recently said they're going to turn over. We've also re advocated for reforms to the shareholder proposal process that this SEC, without much justification, is starting to turn over. Um, so I think it's fair to say that businesses can do good for society, but not if they're micromanaged by policymakers that have other agendas in mind. Great. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, Siri, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Doug and Bill. Uh, thanks, Jennifer and Cato and everyone in this audience. So wonderful to be back here at Cato. Um, so I'm going to cover this ESG, and I want to cite a couple of things we've talked about earlier today. First of all, uh, our SEC Commissioner Udata opened with his remarks saying that there's only 54% correlation. Uh, I've been a researcher for 23 years, and we're looking for 90%, but ideally 70 or 80%. Um, and I think Doug's point earlier about no, no precise definition is, is true here. We talked a lot about the E, especially in the last uh, session. I'd like to tackle the S and the G. Um, I've been a researcher on board diversity in particular for 23 years. Um, lots of papers on this topic, qualitative and quantitative, and checking things. And so I want to approach this a little bit from that. Um, I'll agree with Bill's comments especially. Uh, the SEC has proposed and is in the process of developing a number of major and radical changes um, which are completely outside its remit to corporate governance in the U.S. That, to your point, they're focusing more on the social fabric than they are on um, the company's ability to operate. Um, and this is so vital. We haven't really mentioned the everyday American or indeed other investors around the world who can buy into these public companies, but we owe them the ability to allow those companies to operate well. Um, 
So as Christina noted, uh, the EU was ahead in some other areas. She was talking especially about climate. Um, and by ahead, <laughs> some think that that's a good thing. And obviously, Christina pointed a lot of the holes. I want to say the same thing about corporate governance um, pieces, especially on board gender diversity. We've been studying this for um, like 20 years because those are when some of the first regulations were being talked about and came out. Um, I also am a professor in Norway. And of course, we've had a gender board quota since about uh, 2000. Five. Um, and so let me just talk a little bit about pushing through some of these myths. And another piece I'll mention with the EU, um, exactly a month ago, the European Council of the European Union issued a directive that at least 40% of non-executive directors, that's outside directors who don't hold a position in the firm, um, should be held by members of the underrepresented sex, i.e. women. And otherwise, it's a 33% quota to all directors, so inside and outside directors. And uh, countries in the EU that don't have this um, will face greater scrutiny. Uh, those of you in the audience are probably familiar with the California mandate, which was recently uh, declared unconstitutional. Uh, just to briefly cover some of the myths of this. Um, first myth is often about uh, um, that there's no organic growth. In fact, even in the US, without these quotas for years, we've had organic growth. So we had, for example, in 1995, the share of female CEOs, executive officers, and directors was 0, 8.7, and 9.5%. This year, it's 6, 40, and 30%. Um, and if we look at the Russell 3000, that's 25.2% sent female directors in the US. Similar numbers in the UK that doesn't have this. Um, another myth is that we'll get the most qualified directors. Um, in France, when they faced a quota, 25% of those newly appointed female directors were family members. And then also you had politicians and celebrities. Um, and I won't point out those publicly in the US, but we can think of a lot of ex uh, administrative folks, who, females who've recently joined boards. Um, another one is that publicly traded firms will comply with this board diversity mandate. In Norway, we saw a shocking amount of firms. Uh, we would say, depending on the study, between 23% uh, and 42% of firms that could have uh, delist or just not list at all. Um, so I think the, to some of the points earlier today, we have these firms that are exiting the public market. Um, being bought up by private equity and then people don't have a chance. Another myth is that the public supports these. Um, they're being pushed by institutional investors um, and they have been for years. We certainly have records of this. Um, another one is the business case and financial performance. There's now over 250 studies and there's no consensus there whether you're measuring by accounting or market-based measures. Um, and for every positive study, there's a negative one and there's an inconclusive one. Another myth would be about corporate governance processes improving. For example, having more discussion in meetings, better processes. Again, all those studies are inconclusive and there's over 100 of those. Um, and then I just would point out finally that this is one step towards a lot of unconstitutional and detrimental corporate governance overreach. Again, commissioners, um, opening remarks, he talked about how ESG could mean water usage two years from now. And I think that we're seeing this as really an avalanche of legislation that is, again, unconstitutional outside the remit of the SEC and other involved agencies. Great. Thank you so much, Siri. So I think
think we can all agree that we can't really agree on what counts as ESG and what doesn't. Um, we're going to turn into one of the biggest topics in the ESG world, and uh, that's the SEC's climate risk disclosure proposal. And we're going to look at it from a you know a corporate governance lens. You know, how is this rule departure from other corporate dis disclosures we've seen the past few decades? And you know, what can we you know take away you know from this as you know we wait for other disclosures uh, that's that are on the SEC agenda? You know, such as a potential human capital disclosure. Maybe I can start. Sure. Sure. So you know, I think it's. Start by saying it's a proposed rule. Um, you know, the chamber has followed this issue extremely closely. We filed an 80-page comment letter with the SEC with a 60-page worth of, of appendices. We filed another comment letter three weeks ago that was maybe half that length that did a thorough review of the comment file and also included our own cost-benefit analysis. Um, from our perspective, we do think that there is some opportunity to rationalize some of the disclosures that companies are making as it relates to climate and some other topics that they're making voluntarily. You know, we don't want this information to be confusing to stakeholders that are interested in it. Um, the SEC put out guidance about 10 years ago about, you know, maybe how companies could think about doing this and how they could structure climate disclosures if they felt so inclined to make them. You know, the challenge we're running into with this prescriptive and re requirement from the SEC effectively is that in many ways it creates a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, not every industry is the same, and even within those industries, not every business is the same. And this runs counterintuitive to my kind of opening views on what materiality standard is. What is material to one business and one group of investors is not material to all. And so there's a significant amount of friction here that the SEC is going to need to sort through um, as they work through this rule. Um, you know, in terms of specific recommendations we've given to the SEC, and I'll say this is by far from an exhaustive list. I mentioned we filed now hundreds of pages with them. Um, we're concerned about the proposal's inclusion of financial reporting rules. You know, effectively, how are we going to take these climate disclosure mandates from the SEC and, and, and measure them um, in companies' financial statements? Um, the scope three uh, standard that I think is really the focus of a lot of the debate, primarily because it's really easy to talk about, you know, kind of throughout your supply chain, what are all your climate disclosures? You know, that sounds really hard and really complicated. And frankly, it's because it is. You know, companies that have been invested in making climate disclosures now for many years, companies that are really dedicated to this process, companies that are interested in making scope three commitments have told us what the SEC proposed is unworkable at this time. They've gone as far to say that they will actually step back from some of their climate commitments if this is required to be included in their financial statements. You know, these companies are subject to significant liability for everything that is disclosed here. Um, and then finally, you know, we are also encouraging the SEC to incorporate, or incorporate feedback from the EPA and closely coordinate with the EPA. And this gets to, I think, a fundamental question about the SEC's role. Um, you know, the SEC is not a climate regulator. I don't know that they're claiming to be a climate regulator, but there's been a lot of discussion now about the relevance of the major questions doctrine in light of West Virginia versus EPA and the applicability to this rule. Um, you know, that's something that the courts um, might decide. Um, there are a lot of different stakeholders out there talking about whether or not a rule merits a challenge. Um, we haven't seen a final rule yet, but I think the major questions doctrine will be at the forefront of those conversations. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that with climate, 
you know, I, I've been on the disclosure writing side. I was the corporate secretary for Johnson & Johnson. You know, I've worked with the chamber on a, a many initiatives. Um, I, I think there's legitimacy in this topic and exploring it, and I'll go into that. But I, I do think they're trying to do too much too fast. Um, and with like a lot of things, they do that. Now, hopefully, you know, the proposal, which I think is really overreach, hopefully gets pared back. I know there's going to be some legal challenges based on, uh, you know, the West Virginia case, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I hope it comes to the right place. But in terms of, you know, the SEC's role is the investor, you know, protect the investor or the investor advocate. Um, you know, if this were some, you know, kind of, you know, just fringy, uh, socially responsible investors pushing for climate change uh, disclosure, which they have for years, then I would say, okay, this isn't really, you know, this is more of a special interest. But when BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street start calling for this, that's different. That is very different. Now, you could say that, well, those, the, you know, the people there, you know, this is run by, those institutions are run by people with, uh, you know, the biases or, or, you know, kind of somehow uh, connected to, uh, you know, uh, political interests. Um, I don't think that that's legitimate. If you want to talk about the power of the free markets, the reason that these institutions are so big is because a lot of us have put our money in index funds. And so these institutions got big because, you know, money flocked to it. And now they are saying climate change uh, disclosure, climate change risk is financial risk. You know, they have reason to say that. There's a lot of, uh, you know, they can show you exactly why. Now, if people didn't believe that, they would move their money elsewhere. But there continues to be an influx of money into the BlackRock, State Streets, and Vanguards. And so, I think if you have the largest investors in the world saying that they, this data is important to them, I, I think that's definitely something the SEC should be looking at. Um, but, you know, the data out there are not comparable. You know, they're, they're basically voluntary, and whenever that's happening, you have to be suspicious. You know, like I said, I've been on the drafting side of this stuff. There's never been a sustainability report out there that didn't make the company look amazing. That's a problem. And that calls for someone to go in and scrutinize this and say, wait a second, you got to disclose your methodology here. And investors want to compare across companies. So it's not one size fits all. It will depend on the particular company and the particular industry. But there has to be, you know, there, there, there's not, you know, that's what government is for, to go in and you know, establish some kind of baseline and some kind of rules of the game. So in principle, I agree with what the SEC is doing in terms of wading into this area. I just don't agree how, with how they're doing it. Maybe just for a quick comment. Um, 
it is so hard to measure this, right? So for 20 years we've been looking at this and the way we tracked ESG in the past was um, so much more primitive than now, but honestly not much better than now. I'm so worried about it increasing the cost of capital for a lot of really great firms um, that again will opt out of the market. And then I'm also worried about something you may not see, but I see inside of a business school and a university is a complete shift in the orientation of teaching and also in the careers because um, we haven't talked yet about the firms that audit these firms, but that's where the job growth is, folks. Um, they're looking for all these ESG accountants and no longer auditors. Um, and so we're not just shifting this in these capital markets, we're also shifting it in the training, um, which is, in my opinion, quite scary. Well, yeah, I think it was like the Center for Audit Quality said that it was like of the, about, you know, virtually all S&P 500 firms have um, an ESG report, but only about 15% get that assurance from like a public um, company auditor and you know the rest those who do get the others who get insurance um, it's all you know from other verifications um, and two I you know I'm curious to you about how you know the but you know we have voluntary disclosures too as well which have proved their point they have their use so far with uh, TCFD and various others um, you know do you guys think you know they should be is that a good model of relying so much on these voluntary disclosures as a starting point? Or, you know, you know, at what point do, you know, we need to sort of step away from the voluntary regimes too with those frameworks? I, I think if you don't put some framework in place, voluntary disclosures are meaningless. Um, I mean, if you can't compare them, if they're not, you know, like I said, the methodology is all different, the assumptions are all over the place. So something's got to exist. And, you know, voluntary means that you're not going to get the whole market to go along. You know, maybe you'll get a quarter of the actors doing kind of voluntary disclosure that has a lot of, um, uh, you know, integrity. But the rest of the market, you know, companies don't do what they're not required to do. I mean, I've been in many meetings saying, well, are we required to do this? Show me where the law says we have to do this, and if it doesn't, then we're not going to do it. I mean, that's just the nature of corporations, whether that's good or bad. Um, so, and I, I think that the way it's happening now, yeah, I think independent you know, independent bodies trying to do this is probably better than doing it through the political process. I'm not a big, um, I don't have a lot of faith in the political process these days. Um, and so I do think independent actors could fill the void of where government uh, tends to, you know, tends to have their own failures. Quickly add a thought to that too. So. I think Doug makes some great points. And I want to add to that is there's this risk of also having conflicting and overlapping disclosure regimes as well. And so the part of the drive right now is there are a lot of different voluntary disclosure regimes and a number of companies are saying, we don't want to report to three or four different standards. So at least on climate, there's been this movement towards TCFD as a, as a framework that can be constructive and useful and helpful. 
So when we have, when there's agreement around that, but then we have policymakers start making deviations from that, that's what really creates issues for business. And so aspects of what the SEC has proposed, at least at this point, in our mind, deviate from the TCFD framework. Um, what the EU is doing on its corporate sustainability reporting directive, they are outwardly saying that they want to be a global standard setter on environmental disclosure and maybe other disclosures too. And so they're going above and beyond what SASB is contemplating here. And they're going right now at least as far to say that if you are a US domiciled company with a presence in the EU, your financial statements here should report to their standards. You know, pretty significant extraterritorial reach and creating a lot of, it's kind of creating a lot of chaos out of the harmony that um, Doug is talked about, you know, com companies aspiring to here. And so, you know, if it's kind of lack of uh, faith in the political process here. Um, <laughs> I think that's fair, it's a fair question and something the US Chamber is trying to navigate on behalf of our members every day. Yeah, the, I mean, the other thing that's interesting about comparing um, US system with European system, um, in the U.S., you know, this is this disclosure-based regime in terms of what we try to do. Europe makes no bones about it that they are trying to change behavior. I mean, they, oh, they're not, that's not any secret. They are saying that's what they're trying to do. And so, you know, whether you agree with one side or the other, yeah, they're not in complete alignment with what they're trying to accomplish um, I do think the some of the independent actors are, you know, trying to come at it in a more objective way. Great. I think we're going to move on to another topic that's very timely, and that's political spending, since we're coming off the midterms. Uh, the 2022 CPA Zicklin Index came out last month, and it found that 62% of S&P 500 companies have a general board oversight of their company's applicable spending. Meanwhile, for the first time, the index looked at the Russell 1000, and of the portion of the Russell 1000 that's not on the S&P 500, they found that just about 10% had such board oversight. And, you know, this is coming up as active investors are demanding more transparency around contributions and. You know, we're seeing companies um, who had taken a pause on uh, their PACs resuming uh, contributions to um, Republicans who voted against certifying the 2020 election. Um, you know, what risks do companies and board directors face, you know, not adequately addressing, you know, having some level of scrutiny of their uh, corporate political spending? And, you know, as we discussed a little bit earlier, you know, the SEC doesn't have the authority to um, have a disclosure on, you know, political spending. Uh, Doug, do you want to take it away? Yeah, I, I mean, this is a complicated area and one where I've kind of gone back and forth in terms of how I, you know, look at it. Um, I do think it is legitimate to say that the board should have some kind of oversight on the company's political activity. If the company has a PAC, I think the board has an interest in kind of understanding how that PAC operates. Um, my personal opinion is that PACs are bad. I hate PACs. I wish companies could get, a, get away from them. IBM never had one. Uh, Charles Schwab just folded their PAC. I don't think you really need them, and it's a way to force, you know, you end up forcing employees, you know, it's... Yeah, if you want to, if you want to kind of 
get promoted. We're going to look at how much you gave to the pack. I just think that's really distasteful and, and slimy, frankly. But if you have one, I think the board should look at how that's done. You know, are people being, you know, promoted based on how much they give to the pack? And yeah, when January 6th happens, I think the board, you know, and, and people say, well, wait a second, this corporation is giving to all 147 uh, uh, members of Congress who voted to decertify the election. I think the board has an interest in knowing that because that has a public effect. Whether you like it or not, someone's going to be out there saying, you know, that, you know, this happened, and maybe those companies should not be uh, propping up those uh, those particular candidates anymore. Um, and, and so, you know, if that's going to have an impact on how the company is perceived, or even if it's going to have, or you know, more importantly, if it's going to have a an impact on that company's business, then yes, the board should be overseeing that somehow. I can add on to that a little bit too. So, kind of start off by saying I don't, in terms of the board's, or in terms of my remarks, I don't want to like belittle any sort of political activity or debate, January 6th or anything else that society feels is important. But, you know, from our perspective, we think it's very important that companies have the ability to engage in political activity. As Doug mentioned, there should be some level of oversight here. But I think of, you know, kind of the first 30 minutes of our discussion here has been, at least to some degree, about how the SEC has been trying to micromanage the functioning of companies, how other government agencies are trying to increasingly micromanage how companies operate and our markets increasingly, and companies need the tools to engage in the political process. Um, again, fair to say we should have appropriate oversight here, um, but we need, to, we need to keep that in mind as part of this. Um, you mentioned, too, that the, um, the SEC doesn't have authority. Uh, to promulgate a rule on political spending disclosure. You know, Congress spoke on this. Um, that's kind of the will of the people, will of the elected representatives to say, like, no, SEC, we don't want you to regulate free speech. You know, there are legitimate First Amendment questions that need to be considered here. Um, I think, the, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is I saw some polling just earlier this week. It was private polling um, that we didn't conduct, but it happened to come across that said that less than majority of Americans think that uh, political spending disclosure is material information. And so I'm not sure exactly what we're trying to get at in this debate. Are we trying to force corporations to take positions on issues uh, that are kind of broad societal impacts, which I know we can talk about a little bit later through political spending disclosure and, and you know, increased requirements on boards? Or, or are we trying to achieve something else? And a lot of the time, some of the activism we see is to encourage companies to take political positions or not take political positions um, that might might not actually be in the company's best interest. Thank you. Um, I love this field. It's called corporate political activity. There's a really rich literature in management. Um, I agree with the comments that this may not be material info for in investors. It is for researchers because there's so many studies where you can look at CEO or board political contributions and then almost quite accurately predict where the company goes in the future. I will bring up crypto for the second time today, and you know the events of this week. Um, I watched the video of Ken Griffin, and I just want to repeat what he said, although I probably won't get it exactly right. But um, SBF, 
the Sam guy from FTX, was the second largest donor to Democrats um, pushing you know, for regulation or non-regulation, and you have an absolute collapse of this. Um, we can't imagine all the people who um, you know, invested in this because it was pushed by celebrities and so forth and was condoned, um, not by this think tank, but by other think tanks in DC. Um, so for that reason alone, I do think we need some oversight of it, but I, you know, I don't think it's material either for investors. Yeah, I mean, I want to be clear that I do agree that corporations should be involved in the political process. Um, if your industry's, uh, you know, regulatory regime is going to be completely rewritten, it would be uh, negligent for your company not to want to be at the table and have some say in that. Um, but there's a difference there. That that's you know there's a difference between political contributions and lobbying. I think the companies should be lobbying. It's uh, in their best interests. Uh, it's in their investors' best interests. When you talk about political contributions, I, I think that's a, a you know somewhat of a different animal. Um, contributions to super PACs also somewhat of a different animal. Um, but I see no reason, you know, if companies do that and that's disclosed to people, then people can make up their minds whether they, you know, some people are going to care, uh, some people are not. But I think it is, you know, and some of the disclosure, it's already being done. You know, it's a lot of this disclosure already exists. Um, it's out there. You know, you can debate whether, you know, should the company uh, be forced to spend the money to compile it and put it in a in an SEC filing. Um, but but I think that, you know, uh, the the, uh, the the process has has an outcome uh, where the disclosure, you know, is something that's it's relevant to somebody. It just might not be relevant to investors. Great, thank you. And I just want to uh, remind our audiences that are at home, uh, you can submit questions online through the event webpage, Facebook and YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoEcon. Uh, and for the audience here, you know, just start thinking about questions as we approach the end of this panel. Uh, I want to pivot toward um, board diversity. And Siri, you talked um, quite a bit about uh, the research brief you in your opening remarks. And, you know, I was reading it a couple nights ago, and you know, you know, your as you said before, your argument in that show, you know, is that you know, mandating companies to have you know a certain number or a certain percentage of women on their boards is you know not only unconstitutional and unnecessarily burdensome, but also it doesn't really work. It doesn't have it doesn't drive the outcomes that it seeks. Um, just sort of curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, if companies, you know, have the intention or investors that you, you know you want to improve board diversity. If it's not, you know, through government invention, then you know, what are other ways in the corporate governance space they can work on that, or is there other ways that governments can encourage it if it's not through a strict quota mandate? Oh, we've had so many of those. Um, so everything from mentoring programs to some um, d disclosures without punishment. So let me just be clear that when you have a mandatory 
uh, board gender quota. In other countries like Norway, this means if you don't reach 40%, you are delisted from the Oslo Stock Exchange there. Um, yeah. In Spain, you won't be prioritized for public contracts. And if you think pub public procurement is big in the US, it's, it's even bigger in a country like Spain relative to, to everything else. Um, you could have directors who you name, but they're not actually appointed or you're not allowed to pay them. Um, there are many, many, many different sanctions. Um, but there are all these other tools that have worked quite well. Um, and I think we could continue to use them. There's a just a bunch of papers, um, because although we have about 13 countries with mandatory gender quotas, <laughs> we have a lot without them um, that have equally great representation. Sweden's a wonderful example. So although it's adjacent to Norway, there haven't been these mandatory quotas, and they've been doing quite well. I have one of the only studies that compares the Norwegian firms that were subject to those quotas versus comparable firms in Sweden, Denmark, and Finland. And uh, there we find that the Norwegian firms over a seven-year period didn't perform better financially and they didn't have better risk profiles, going back to the panel before this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to challenge, you know, this notion that, you know, things happen organically. Um, you know, in, what, in terms of, you know, kind of gender equality and civil rights, nothing has happened organically. It's all been, you know, forced or pressured by somebody. Um, so, you know, there, I, I think the, the statistics you cited on, you know, female CEOs, uh, females in the boardroom, yeah, it's been organic, but it's been slow. It's 2022, and you still have a tiny portion of S&P 500 uh, CEOs who are women. You know, why is that? That's, that's weird. That's strange. And that means something else is going on. The resistance is real. I mean, we see the resistance. People are not shy of resisting, you know, having women in the boardroom. And I, I, there are all kinds of, re, you know, explanations and what I think are excuses for, for, for not having this. Um, you know, some all-male boards have said, well, having a woman in the room kind of changes the dynamic and it makes us kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. That's the point, you know, to kind of, you know, take you out of your comfort zone um, and have a different voice that is going to change the dynamic. What are you so scared of? Um, in terms of quotas, you know, other countries have had draconian policies on, on doing things. You know, with, with regards to California, the fines for not doing this are minimal, and yet there's still resistance. In terms of quotas, you know, quotas are a bad word in the United States. If having one woman on your board is a quota, then great. Call it a quota. It's one woman out of, you know, 12 or 13 directors. Add a seat. I don't care. But, you know, to, to say, you know, with so much resistance, there's something else going on. I don't think this qualification, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this notion that, you know, 
women and minorities aren't qualified is a valid one. There are plenty of qualified people. You're just not looking for them or you're ignoring them. Um, it also assumes that everybody currently on boards is qualified. <laughs> I was going to say something else, but you kind of uh, answered the question. Um, you know, uh, surveys show that most board members feel that there's someone else on the board, of course not themselves, who should be taken off the board, you know? And, and so it's, there's kind of a consensus out there that there are people on the board who are not qualified or they should be moved off. They are falling asleep at the meetings. They are no longer reading the materials. You know, they, they are not, you know, completely there anymore. Um, you know, these are all issues that need to be dealt with, and they don't get dealt with organically because there are other forces at play. I'll add two quick thoughts. So, you know, PwC did annual corporate disclosure or director survey a few years ago, and it found that 87% thought diversity enhances board performance, getting to Doug's point. In terms of kind of the right policies to go about here, you know, from the chamber's perspective, we agree. We think we should have a diversity of perspectives on boards. But then let's talk about kind of the policy mechanisms that are right for achieving this. Um, kind of mandates that require diversity that have a, some sort of penalty that includes delisting, sort of kind of like really hard sort of approaches like that. Um, we don't think those are the right approach. Um, we have a lot of concerns with just the number of companies that are currently operating in the public market. Series touched on it a little bit, but every time you impose some new mandate on a public company, there's more strongly likelihood it's going to go private. Um, there are a lot of ripple effects from that, but you know, one of the primary things that I think gets lost here is that retail investors lose a lot of opportunities to invest in those companies. They're not accredited investors. You know, the everyday American, they have opportunities to invest in the public markets, but not the private markets. And so, you know, getting back to Doug's point too, is this going to happen organically? Um, maybe not. And so the chambers tried to be incredibly proactive here. You know, we've endorsed legislation year after year to include or to require that um, publicly listed companies in the U.S. have increased disclosure about board diversity, including the candidates for the boards, also some voluntary disclosures about uh, senior officers, and then finally for the SEC to create a task force that will come up with additional recommendations to improve board diversity. I think this is an objective we need to get to. Um, we just want to make sure we're um, working in the right government policies to enact it. Great, thank you guys. Uh, I think we'll turn to audience questions here. If people want to raise their hands, uh, let's start with you over there. And you could just state your name and affiliation, that'd be great, thank you. Esther Dyson from Wellville. I'm just curious and surprised not to have heard more discussion of boards where the board members actually have no real power because the fan, and you know, Sam Bankman-Fried is a great example, so is Mark Zuckerberg, mm -hmm. and a few others. That to me seemed, you know, it's structural, it's much easier to define than is someone actually some kind of person or qualified or not. This gets to, just briefly, what we differentiate between surface and deeper level diversity. So surface are those things that are being mandated because you can easily count them. Um, gender, age, ethnicity. Um, deeper level diversity would be the political contributions, religious, background, et cetera. Um, and 
you know, it's so much easier to measure the surface and not to think about whether or not, for example, these board directors would speak up against powerful and, in, in certainly the case of Sam, deeply unethical and flawed individual. Uh, yeah, um, in, in Esther, to your point, in terms of um, you know board power, um, and the example of Mark Zuckerberg, I think being kind of a primary one, where you have an individual who you know controls the company. The board really can't. The board and the shareholders really can't do anything about it if he makes decisions that are unpopular or that are even bad for the business. You know, he controls the company. I don't, I'm not exactly sure if it matches up with his economic interests, but, you know, I think that's a different story. I don't think, you know, I, I don't like that, frankly, and that's why, you know, I told my investment, my advisor, can we, like, get out of our Facebook position Let's, can we please get out of Tesla? You know, I think, you know, yes, we benefited, but at this point I've seen enough. Um, I don't think those companies should be banned. You know, dual class structure, that's a legitimate, you know, uh, capital structure. Uh, I don't think it should be banned from an index or a listing, you know, it's out there. Investors know about it. They know about the pros and cons and they can invest if they want. I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who said that, well, Snap went public and they didn't give their shareholders any voting rights. The shareholders didn't seem to care. The thing was oversubscribed. Those people knew what they were getting into. But that's the whole idea that there are tools that a company can use or not use, and the investors know that. These are sophisticated investors, and they made choices. If they don't like them later, too bad you made those choices. You knew that going in, and so you want to complain later? Get out. Go buy shares of whatever else you want to buy uh, that doesn't have a dual-class structure. Uh, the gentleman over there. Thank you. Um, my question is, what risks are for corporate governance are we creating through ESG for uh, executives that violate American laws? And uh, just three examples come to mind. So, for example, United Airlines um, setting quotas for hiring of pilots according to race and gender seems to be a clear violation of American civil rights law, which specifically bans that. Um, Companies, uh, the, the Sherman Antitrust Act bans corporate collusion when acting against other companies and industries, and yet all these companies get together in Davos and they sign pledges, uh, Climate Action 100 Plus, to reduce fossil fuels. So that seems to be illegal. And thirdly, uh, there have been shareholder protests against companies like Coca-Cola and Disney for wasting corporate, uh, wasting corporate assets to the extent that they impair their brand uh, through political positions that they may take, whether it's against the Florida Parental uh, Rights Act or uh, Georgia voting laws. So my question is, um, what, from a corporate governance perspective, what risks are we creating for companies that follow ESG principles 
that violate U.S. laws and make them subject to lawsuits. I don't think there's anyone who's saying that you should take ESG principles so far as to violate the law. I just haven't heard that. Now, some of the examples you point out where you say that clearly it's a violation of law, okay, the regulators should go after those. Uh, you know, yeah, like there are laws in place, uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act, the Williams Act, you know, there are plenty of laws that I think Elon Musk has broken that I was going to ask Mark Ueda, why the hell haven't you gone after this guy? I mean, come on. Um, and so I, I don't think ESG is promoting anything illegal. If there are people, you know, I mean, you can argue that people are, who are saying, maximize shareholder value. Maximizing shareholder value kind of gives people an incentive to break the law as well. So I just don't see it. I'll respectfully disagree, and I like a lot of Kevin's work. Um, we, we do see these examples where people in these companies, what, now some of them may not be on the board, obviously, or executives, but they want to take it um, to the next level and they do violate the laws and I think we're we're gonna I'm honestly I think we're gonna see this more and more um, I'm about three hours of and seven minutes away from Disney because we take the kids there often and um, you know if we think about all those decisions what it happened was that you know really corporate cronyism back in the 60s they should never have had their own self patrolling district. And so all those activities kind of shown a spotlight on that, that really piece and, and was stripped away that and also, you know, not having the streaming bandwidth of Netflix and others. But anyway, I think we're going to see examples. I think there's always going to be employees and companies on various sides who are going to try to take this further. And sometimes the corporation will go along with it. Um, and I'll point out, you know, that, for example, with the United Airlines piece, um, companies also can't um, discriminate on the basis of age, and when you try to retire people earlier, that's uh, than they than they'd like to, and that they're qualified for. That's age discrimination. Suppose I can speak up on this briefly too. A lot of great American companies we were discussing here, and members of the chamber. Um, I think both sides are making some valid points here, but I really kind of. Doug's point about that companies should follow the law. Yes, of course they should follow the law. And, you know, obviously we support, you know, businesses following the law. What I think was a really helpful point, though, when you say, too, that companies trying to, if there, if there is this kind of debate out there about ESG, meaning that companies aren't maximizing shareholder return, there are probably plenty examples of companies out there who have made attempts to maximize shareholder return that have not followed the law, whether it's polluting more than some than they're allowed to, for example, or not following some sort of safety protocols or cutting the cor cutting corners there, you know they should be held accountable. Um, and so I don't think there's necessarily any sort of friction here about you know whether or not you can achieve ESG. I, would say, I don't think there's any conflict here about whether or not you can achieve ESG sort of principles and follow the law. But I certainly do understand how ESG has changed the conversation about um, business strategy and business objectives. I've got the gentleman, the blue guys over there in the back. Yes, you. <laughs> 
Thank you very much. <clears throat> My name is Wallace DeWitt. I'm a lawyer in private practice and used to work for Commissioner Pivovar at the SEC. Um, let me advance, just to see your reaction, um, let me advance an alternative theory of ESG as a securities lawyer. Uh, it strikes me that many of the proposals, and if you read the rulemakings, they seem largely pretextual and motivated by social desirability bias. At the same time, disclosure rules, I mean, I've written thousands of disclosures over the years. Yes, they're expensive the first year or two. Three, four years later, I and a legion of other securities lawyers are control C, control Ving, risk factors about earthquakes in Japan and things going on in Iran and things about the GHG emissions. Is this, to be a little bit just devil's advocate here, is this just the easy way of placating some consciences and this is just going to go away in five years. Because, I mean, we, 10 years ago, we'd be talking about Congo conflict minerals, pay ratio. I mean, is that really driving people out of the markets at this point? Should we really care this much about these issues, or should we focus on other market structure stuff? Well, I think we've seen a dramatic reduction in the number of public companies in the U.S. Um, some of these disclosure mandates are certainly attributable to that. Um, there are probably some other... Um, some other sort of other corporate governance uh, policies that are attributable to that as well. And so the kind of result we're seeing is more private companies. Um, I don't think we can ignore that. Um, on the climate, I think it's fair to say that compliance gets easier, it gets less costly as companies understand it, they understand the SEC's expectations, they understand where the lawsuits are gonna come from and how they can avoid those. Um, but what the SEC has proposed in the climate rule, at least, the com compliance cost there, we have estimated at least, on its own would exceed all of the other compliance costs combined. Mm -hmm. And so you know, these are real costs that we're talking about. Um, you know, and this even gets to the question, that's just a question of cost. There's the question of if, like can companies actually comply with this even if they had an infinite amount of money? Um, a lot of companies have told us they don't know how, or at least not yet. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, like you, I've been on the kind of the writing of the disclosure side. There are some things that the, you know, additional disclosures, uh, you know, there is some benefit. There's a lot of it that's just going to create a lot of boilerplate by, written by guys like you and me. Um, and so, um, you know, but there have been some beneficial things. I think Sarbanes-Oxley was much maligned when it came out. Turns out there were some parts of Sarbanes-Oxley that actually had a, a benefit. And yes, it added cost, but the cost was worth it. Um, you know, companies tend to have a knee-jerk reaction, and I've written these letters before that say, um, there's a proposed new regulation, um, A, we're already doing it, B, we don't need it, C, it's going to create extra costs, D, it's dumb, and, and whatever letter I'm on, you don't have the authority to do it and we're going to sue you in court. And so if, every, if the companies have that knee-jerk reaction to everything, I just don't think the companies are being very constructive. You know, some of these are, are worth having the debate over and this kind of stonewalling saying like, no, 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 everything's good. Let the free markets handle it. Um, 
I, I, I just don't think that's that's a realistic approach. And so, you know, I I very much, you know, admire the work of the chamber because it is very balanced in terms of, yes, sometimes there does need to be regulation. Sometimes there is market failure, but sometimes the regulators, they go way too far. They're, they're reaching uh, beyond where they should, and some of it is based on, hey, can this get me elected in 2024? And I guess I'd challenge the market failure to say that this is creating a government failure. And then something we haven't talked about is just the bureaucratization and the cost. Folks, labor market productivity has been dropping every quarter since COVID. We should be in like the fourth or fifth industrial revolution, and we aren't because we have this bureaucratic morass of legislations. If we peered into office buildings in D.C. and around the country, we'd see so many employees poring over this stuff and discussing it instead of the very real issues that we have as we slide into a recession in the U.S. and in many countries around the world. Um, we're just out of time. Thank you guys so much for sharing your thoughts and expertise. Uh, we will now take a 30-minute break for lunch. Uh, please join us back at 1 o'clock for the next panel, ESG and Investing, moderated by American Banker reporter Claire Williams. Thank you. Thank you.